everyone and welcome back to It All Starts Here. This is a podcast focusing on the communication of topics in reproductive science and women's health. I am your host, Olivia Moyer, and we are here at the Institute for Women's Health at UCL here in London. And we are back. I'm so excited after a bit of a summer holiday. And by summer holiday, I really just mean writing up my 20,000 word dissertation, which is almost done. But I'm so excited to be back here today, and we are going to be talking about PCOS, which is also known as polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, And to do this, I have with me Dr. Basil Wattar, who is a consultant obstetrician and gynecologist based in London. He has advanced expertise in various areas, including fertility, assisted conception, endocrine gynecology, menopause, and of course, importantly for today, PCOS. So very interestingly, he is the co-leader of a research group dedicated for evidence synthesis at UCL, which is something that we've talked a lot about on this pod and really the importance of having evidence-based research. So it is such a pleasure to have you here with me today. I always love to start off a little bit of backstory. So maybe you can give us maybe a quick run through of how you got here today um, and really why you're so keen to study PCOS and briefly a little bit on your evidence-based research group, Evie. Lovely. Thank you for the kind introduction and thank you for having me here today and covering an important topic like uh, PCOS. Backstories. Oh gosh, I'm not sure how far <laughs> to go back, but I'm originally Belgian Syrian and I came to the UK immediately after my med school to do my advanced training in obstetrics and gynecology. A lot of people ask me why ONG and to me it's like the utmost satisfactory um, discipline because you're helping, you know, creating families and helping, you know, mothers stay healthy and that's the key in my opinion to a healthy family and a healthy society so it gives a lot of satisfaction and i'm I'm, you know quite um, glad i I went in this very long venture um endocrine and fertility so i guess a a key exposure when i was in my first year of training i got a sort of opportunity to do some early research on a a intravaginal probe that was detecting te- changes in temperature to detect ovulation and that sort of sent me on a rabbit hole of when ovulation happens and how menstrual cycles regulated and what the hormones are and I, I still to this day finding ever fascinating because we just so have so many sort of question marks and we still have a lot to understand and sort of PCOS is 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 the pinnacle of so many question marks still to unravel and uh, well, there is more and more research, and we do know quite a bit about how to manage it and, and, and deal with its consequences. Till this day, we don't really know the main cause of PCOS, like where does it start? And it's sort of um, the chicken and the egg story, because um, pe- people who are gynecologists like me tend to think it starts in the ovaries, while endocrinologists tend to think it starts in the brain and the hypothalamus and where the hormones are secreted and this imbalance between the hypothalamus and the ovaries is all dealing with all the causing this imbalance in hormones and leading to these different symptoms that uh, women of PCOS tend to suffer from um so yeah extremely interesting I still find it interesting and enjoy researching it and most importantly enjoy looking after women with this condition in the NHS I love that. I love hearing about where it kind of starts. Um, and I agree, it's so it's so important. And I 
think so interesting to start off with studying things relating to the beginning of life, you know, where we all come from and um, what goes into that. So in terms of um, bringing together the evidence-based research, you started this or you're co-leading a group on um, this kind of research. What is that? You focus on different topics. Yeah, so the group is called EV, Evidence Mm -hmm. Synthesis and Methodology in Women's Health, and we are dedicated to women's health. And the idea came about that if you look across London, there's so many different, you know, leading universities that are really top class in medical research. But actually, there is not even one single research group that is doing evidence synthesis in women's health. And evidence synthesis is sort of, um, for our audience, is is in very simple terms, the process of translating research and putting it back into clinical practice. And it goes from doing systematic reviews, meta-analyses, clinical practice guidelines, and so on and so forth, assessing the evidence, putting down um, findings from different studies so that we can have more confidence, more precise um, results. And then that could help guide clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine because that's what we would like to offer our patients is that we're offering them the best quality clinical advice that is underpinned in top quality research. And, and that is what EV um, really wants um, to achieve. Mm-hmm. So we are a vibrant group of both clinicians, methodologists, systematic reviewers, statistician, health economists, um, which is a sort of a culmination of different talent across UCL. And we look into, so currently we're looking into a big project, looking into treatments for heavy menstrual bleeding, which is funded by the NIHR. We do a lot of research on PCOS, on menopause, um, PMS, and obviously uh, fertility and um, assisted conception um, technology in terms of assessing what treatments are good in IVF, how can you maximize the success rate at IVF, and obviously there's more and more reliance on assisted conception. So that's really the, 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 the story behind why EV came through, is just to fill a gap and a need for better evidence to inform clinical practice in, in the domain of women's healthcare. That's fantastic. And it's honestly just mind-blowing that it's the only group uh, amongst all of these universities that are focusing on that evidence-based kind of research. Um, we really need more of that, especially with women's health. Uh, and we need more researchers. There is, there is a steady decline in the number of researchers in women's health across the UK, I'm talking specifically, <clears throat> for a variety of factors. And, uh, you know, if, if, if we can achieve something from today is to in- inspire more and more um, young uh, sort of doctors to come into women's health research. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we sort of began to talk about PCOS. You know, you said that there's different causes. We don't really know. could be hormonal, could be something to do with the ovaries. We're not really exactly sure where it starts but if you were going to just broadly cover for everyone listening who maybe doesn't know as much about what this condition is um what would you say are the main kind of characteristics or things to know like what is pcos really sure so <clears throat> it's important to call it a condition not a disease it's not a disease mm-hmm. it's a, a a chronic so it's by far the most common endocrine disorder affecting women so it's really, really common, and people un- underappreciate how prevalent it is. Technically, in the UK, we estimate between 10 to 15% of women to be affected by PCOS. It's a really common condition. And it starts from the early adolescent years and goes all the way to menopause. So it evolves, it changes how it manifests. And most importantly, as it's a syndrome, it has a collection or a group of symptoms that manifest but it manifests differently in different women 
So not everyone with PCOS will have the same symptoms and these symptoms will vary in severity from one domain or the other. So that what makes it a little bit challenging to mm. diagnose it and managing it because it's not like a, a disease where you give one tablet, that's it, you're cured, carry on the tablet. It doesn't work that way. So the main diagnosis of PCOS is based on something called the Rotterdam criteria, which is established about 20 odd years now. And you need to have two out of three um, sort of um, symptoms, mm -hmm. not really symptoms, symptoms or sign. Mm -hmm. So either irregular or absent periods. When we say absence, more than six months, no period. Mm -hmm. um, excessive hair or growth or acne on the, on the hair, on the face, chest, arms, you know, um, mm -hmm. where a woman would not normally have excessive hair. And um, plus minus an appearance of multiple cysts on the ovaries on ultrasound scan. Now they're they're called cysts. They're not really uh, pathological cysts. They're basically follicles that are arresting. They're not developing to ovulate, and thus they they stay in the ovaries and they give that um, sort of very distinct appearance of multiple follicles in the ovaries that are between two to nine millimeters. They need to be more than twenty, as per the new sort of guidance from the international PCOS guideline. And and basically, <coughs> if you have two of the, uh, of these three symptoms, you're diagnosed with PCOS. The key feature is that these women often don't have any periods mm. which you know, have a lot of health um, problems. They do not ovulate and as such they can't get pregnant without mm. any help. Again, I emphasize not everyone has the same symptoms. They have excessive hair which, is, which can have really severe body image and mm -hmm. self-esteem sort of uh, implications and there's high prevalence of anxiety and depression in this sub-cohort. And they also have... Um, insulin insensitivity meaning there's high insulin resistance in their body tissue and therefore they're having to secrete higher levels of insulin and yet the body processes sugar in a less efficient way compared to someone who does not have PCOS. as such about 50 percent are either overweight or obese because their body converts sugar so quickly to to fat and it's so much harder for them to lose weight so it's a sort of a vicious cycle mm. where this imbalance of hormones keep feeding into more and more adverse symptoms. Now, long-term, PCOS also have long-term implications in that these women, as you probably have guessed, are at higher risk of type 2 diabetes, so they need to be watching, watchful of it, and primarily with lifestyle intervention, but also with other treatments, we'll, we can cover them later. There's also, because they're not having periods, their endometrial thickness is increased, and they're more at risk of having something called endometrial hyperplasia, which is a precursor for endometrial cancer. So it's important for them to at least have one period every three months. Right. Um, and again, is the mental health challenges that I, that I manage that are unfortunately often brushed off and not covered very well in, in, in healthcare services um, for many, many, many reasons. So that's also a summary of what, yeah. what are the common symptoms that women with PCOS would suffer from. Yeah, that was that was great. That was I feel like I understand it so much better myself. Um, okay, so then thinking about treatment. So obviously, as you said, um, there are different symptoms depending on the person and severities. I'm sure of the PCOS affecting whoever has it. Um, but if you were going to say just in general um, how you manage PCOS, what is the normal kind of standard protocol with that? So as I mentioned, the key message is to have individualized management plan so it's not one size fits all in pcos specifically only in medicine in general but specifically in pcos because each woman will have different symptoms mm -hmm. 
the other key message is early adoption of intervention. So often a lot of these women will would experience delayed diagnosis because mm-hmm. a lot of health professionals are either inconfident or they don't know enough about the condition, talking specifically GPs in the community. So they're afraid of calling it PCOS or they delay having all the different investigations and therefore the diagnosis is delayed. Right. And so a large proportion will actually be labeled PCOS when they come to see a fertility specialist like me and we do investigations while you're not getting pregnant and we found, oh, when you have PCOS, you're not ovulating, which is what, late 20s, early 30s, while in reality they probably could have been diagnosed in the early 20s, late adolescent years, and they could have started sort of lifestyle interventions or other treatments that could help them reduce the impact of PCOS. Okay. So the first line, if there is now, luckily we have an international PCOS guideline and it's led by Monash University in Australia, but it has international sort of um, input and a few of us in the UK has contributed to it. So, um, and the first step in the guideline is lifestyle intervention. And I don't want to sound like I'm lecturing and say it's diet, diet, diet. It's not. So it's lifestyle interventions as in look into the patient's lifestyle and see how you can optimize it. So can they uh, increase exercise? Exercise doesn't need to be go on a CrossFit. It, it could be just, you know, having a brisk, regular brisk walk. It could mm-hmm. be taking your dog for a walk um, regularly, for example. It could be having yoga or, or Zumba or Pilates. It doesn't need to be a strenuous exercise. Um, smoke and C-session. And most importantly, dietary intervention. And so if you extrapolate on what we discussed about the insulin resistance, you can pretty much guess that these can, these women cannot um, take a lot of high glycemic index diet. They cannot enjoy uh, chips or ice cream or so on, all their guilty pleasures in life, unfortunately. <laughs> so um, it's important that we support them to understand that. Now, unfortunately, I think in the health service, we're very good in dismissing it and simplifying it and say, oh, go eat five feet pieces of fruit today. Like, this is not going to resolve the problem. Mm-hmm. You need to help them to, A, understand their trigger foods so when you're someone is being emotional often you grab a piece of chocolate and and while it sounds like a two two seconds thing it actually has a lot of impact if you have pcos and also about like following a distinct um sort of dietary regime so i recommend to my patients either a mediterranean diet to Mm -hmm. maintain weight they're not going to lose weight on it or an intermittent fasting or keto diet to have to do a short burst of aiming to lose weight Mm -hmm. and then you do it only for a few weeks try to lose some weight and then you go back to a maintenance diet because i'm sure you and myself and everyone listening had tried to go on a diet absolutely you can't do it for more than a (laughs) month or so you'll just revert back to your normal lifestyle it's just the nature of it so uh, you know it's important when we are counseling women of peace don't don't sound like uh, um you just need to lose weight and oversimplify and it's really hard and we need to understand it and support with a lot of information and teaching and education for the patient to enable it. So that's the very first line intervention. Mm -hmm. Then if we sort of reverse engineer from the symptoms we discussed, you need to give them a period at least once every three months so that either go under contraceptive pill Mm -hmm. to have regular periods or sometimes have a withdrawal bleed with a progesterone-only pill that they take every through the, every four, five, six days, every three months to have another period. Mm-hmm. Some will prefer to have a intrauterine myrena coil, which releases progesterone internally, which is more effective. But again, you have to tailor it to the patient you know, age group. Someone who's 20 years old will probably not want to have a coil. Right. Or someone who's late 30s and had her children 
probably she wouldn't mind it and she'll find it advantageous. So yeah. it's important to consider the different sort of um, individualized characteristics. Um, treatment of hair, citizen and acne. So that could be either with anti-androgenic agents within the pill. Mm-hmm. So some of th- some contraceptive pills have this sort of hormone. Mm-hmm. Or you could just use um, an anti-androgen like spironolactone or finasteride, for example. They're becoming more and more prevalent and actually... There's been a very recent um, RCT in the BMJ, um, probably a m- couple months ago, uh, which showed significant improvement for hesitism and acne, uh, acne rather than hesitism, with, with spironolactone, and it's that is safe. Um, so there's more sort of uptake of these treatments to help women with these um, symptoms um, deal with it. Some don't want to take pills, so they resolve to laser treatment or mm-hmm. uh, hair removal. Unfortunately, they're not available in the NHS everywhere. Yeah. And so they could be quite expensive to access to everyone. And then, you know, beyond that, we can talk about the fertility treatment, which is a completely, like, you know, separate topic. And uh, surveillance. So that's a very important. So as we discussed, they are at high risk of diabetes. So we'd recommend a, at least a yearly um, test for their blood sugar. Mm-hmm. Check that there is, they're not edging towards diabetes because mm-hmm. you can always do an intervention to bring yourself back to safety right and as we said if they're not having periods they're at high risk of hyperplasia so it's important to continue with that and lastly the mental health elements and this doesn't always need to be in healthcare sort of services professional healthcare services sometimes just engaging with a peer support group could be could go a long way in offering support and i always tell my patients look look at the very TPCOS charity which is the uk charity for it they have wonderful resources and support groups for women that would really help them deal with the symptoms and you know cope with everything that they have to go through mm. yeah it sounds like i mean Obviously, it just sounds a lot like the sort of empowerment around this topic and um, is maybe lacking mm-hmm. and, and f- giving women sort of that feeling that they're not just kind of making it up or that these exactly. things are valid things. And, and, you know, as you said, don't put all the emphasis on diet, but feeling like those little bits can make a difference, I think, because as you said, you know, or alluded to is just that um, maybe sometimes you know, all of the little things in combination might make a big difference overall, or at least helping to manage the um, symptoms that you're going through. Um, 100%. 100%. And, and as you rightly mentioned, is that sometimes um, a lady would come and say, look, my main problem is that I'm not able to get pregnant. She yeah. get diagnosed with PCOS, but we are guilty as, as health professionals is that we don't probe for the rest of the symptoms. Right. Unless you ask someone, look, you, so they have higher um, tendencies of sleep apnea and snoring at night. Mm-hmm. If you're not going to ask for it, they'll think, oh, it's just me because I'm overweight, I just snore. And it's like, no, it's a consequence of PCOS and you need help with it because it can put you at high risk of cardiovascular disease in the future. Right. And same if you say, look, do you have you know, anxiety, depression? How do you, you know, see your body image? If you don't probe for them, if you don't believe and, and help them to explore it, they will not even know how to start to seek help. So it's important to keep a comprehensive perspective about it and, you know, be open-minded and helpful about exploring the different symptoms. I love it. I love how much you care, and it's such a, I feel, thorough kind of, like, analysis that you have about the whole thing. And um, it's just so lovely. Um, 
So then in terms of you sort of touched upon the fertility kind of aspect of this. So what I got from part of the management was that, you know, just the act of a period. So the shedding of the endometrial lining, um, you need to sort of have that, you know, in order to not have a buildup, I guess, over a few months. So in terms of fertility, like, are those kind of connected? I mean, you're not ovulating. So how, how is that all kind of being managed when you have PCOS? How can that affect your fertility long-term? And what can you do to help with that? Certainly. So in theory, and again, I don't want to sound like I'm lecturing and oversimplifying it. If you adopt early lifestyle measures and helpful measures. So I forgot to mention um, um, insulin sensitizers or antidiabetic drugs like metformin that we also can ha- can use and they can help to attenuate the symptoms of PCOS. Mm-hmm. So if you adopt such measures early on, mm-hmm. you might avoid having the consequences of PCOS. Not necessarily, but they would reduce it. But let's say... You did not know, and you're in early 30s, and you're ready to start your family, trying for two years, and you can't get pregnant. Mm-hmm. So you'd come technically to the fertility specialist, and I don't know why we waste a lot of time asking for what could be the reason. It, it takes only an ultrasound scan and just asking, do you have regular periods? No, PCOS, you could get diagnosis. So it's really it should be quick. Unfortunately, that's not the what happens on the on the ground. So the key thing is to restore ovulation. Okay. The way we restore ovulation is uh, traditionally is by, you know, invoking a withdrawal beat if someone doesn't have any periods and then starting them on a, a pharmacological ovulation induction agent such as clomiphene or letrozole. They work slightly differently. One is an aromatase inhibitor, one is an anti-estrogen uh, receptor. Um, so um, currently the evidence is in favor of using letrozole as a first line pharmacological ovulation induction agent and that is because we've done quite a few trials and we found that because women with PCOS have several follicles if you give them um, the the agent without monitoring they might have more than one egg ovulating so they're at higher risk of twins right so it's it needs to be monitored right because the key information is that women with PCOS have higher association with miscarriage higher association with preterm birth and higher um, risk of complications in pregnancy. Mm. And all these risks that I mentioned are also increased in twins. So the key thing is to avoid having twins in PCOS. Right. And it's not that it's a disaster and I want to make it like, oh, avoid it at all costs. But look, you want a healthy pregnancy, so just have a singleton pregnancy. That is the objective of, it should be the objective of fertility treatment. And so... A lot of patients comes to me and say, oh, I'm PCOS, I'm, I will never have children. It's like, no, the treatment is really simple. You just have a pill for five days of the beginning of the period, you ovulate, and you just get pregnant as anyone else. So, mm-hmm. And it's very successful. So the restoring ovulation with just the pill is have about 80% success chance. And with the presence of ovulation without any other reason for subfertility, there's about 20% chance of clinical pregnancy per, per cycle. So, you know, it's not a very complex treatment. Unfortunately, not everyone responds the same. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there is less understanding of it and of this management specifically among fertility specialists. And that's where a lot of patients get exposed to IVF unnecessarily. Right. So when they fail ovulation induction or they don't don't get uh, pregnant after three cycles, 
a lot of patients get told, oh, you need IVF. Right. You know, and, in, you know, I think everyone listening will agree that IVF is more expensive, more invasive, and more emotionally draining. Mm-hmm. So unless you really need it, just don't, you know, expose the patient to it. Um, so pros and cons, like, you know, it's just about tailoring the treatment and individualizing it as we discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, so IVF does have a success, um, so can increase the success rate in those patients who are not responding to ovulation induction, but I would still maintain, and we recently published an article in uh, Reprodu- Reproductive Biomedicine Online arguing that ovulation induction is the first-line treatment. It should stay there versus others who are arguing that, um, you know, delete ovulation induction altogether out of the treatment cycle and just go for IVF straight away. is like absolutely makes no sense and not even ethical because the first rule of medicine is do no harm. So yeah. why, why would I expose my patient to unnecessary harm if they can get pregnant with just a simple tablet that can, they can take for five days of the month? Right. I think it's interesting because in different um, sort of conditions or complications with health, women's health that I've talked about on this podcast and learned about in my courses this year, um, it's not always the case or most of the time it's not the case that the clinician doesn't know or the researcher doesn't know about what the condition is it's that the patient you know doesn't have a background in science um doesn't know much about women's health themselves unfortunately because they weren't taught it in school but it feels like particularly with pcos there seems to be some sort of block in terms of what a clinician knows and i don't really understand because surely it's not a new condition like surely this has been happening for many years you're very right in your conclusion. The, if you extrapolate a little bit further, we did a recent survey of women in the UK and asked them, what is your health priority? Mm-hmm. What is the thing that upsets you the most in, 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 in accessing healthcare for PCOS? And unanimously, number one is lack of awareness from health professionals. And specifically, they struggle with GPs. And I'm not, you know, you know, Putting them on blast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I respect everything GPs do in the community, and they, they do face a huge challenge. I mean, I cannot um, look after a patient in 10 minutes. It's just, I, I cannot do it. So mm-hmm. uh, with all the respect, it's just that I think it's not covered in the medical curriculum enough. Right. And there is not enough exposure to dealing with it in the community and what needs to be dealt in the community and what needs to be dealt with in the secondary or tertiary care. And then also the nature of PCOS, because it has so many varied symptoms. Mm. So the traditional pathway, you find someone with PCOS going to see the fertility specialist to get pregnant, going to see the dermatologist for the hair, going to see the endocrinologist for the risk of diabetes, going to see the GP for the mental health disorders. But then these specialists are not talking among themselves. Mm-hmm. So instead of one uh, trip that you'd argue to a specialist PCOS clinic, that this patient will have to be to make three, four trips to three different, four different specialists who might you know, not talking to each other. And that further sort of make the patients frustrated because they feel like no one's listening to them. They have these symptoms and each specialist is telling them something different. So it's just about the model of care and the access to healthcare um, sort of that is needed to change. Yeah, It is evolving gradually. So we're seeing more and more specialist PCOS and gynae endocrine clinics in the NHS. It's a slow process, but uh, I think um, I see some, some, you know, some winning in it. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, I hope, um, you know, going forwards, it will be, you know, better addressed by people that maybe even aren't specialized. Like, as you said, going to your GP, if, you know, 
it, it would be great if you, that could involve an ultrasound every time just going to your GP you could get an ultrasound and bam there's your diagnosis because yeah. as you said it can be just do you have regular periods and you know looking on the ultrasound um so I kind of hope going forwards maybe that could be implemented but um in terms of you know giving a piece of advice for um, people that are listening that are maybe going through this syndrome or they don't know or they're going through something and they maybe don't have a diagnosis yet of PCOS, do you have you know let's first focus on the patient. Do you have advice um, for uh, someone going through this, like what they can do in terms of advocating for themselves or how to bring awareness to this? Like what are some steps that you think would be helpful for the patient to acknowledge with that? Sure. Um, as we previously discussed, it all starts with education. Mm-hmm. And then I think uh, if you have the condition, you need to start educating yourself mm-hmm. about what resources are out there. I'm very aware that a lot of it is dull, dry, medical sort of language that is could be very hard to, to comprehend. And I struggle with it sometimes. Um, but I would say just... R- sort of visits the websites that are available from uh, charities. So I mentioned the PCOS um, Verity charity in the UK. There's PCOS Challenge. There's quite a few um, sort of international charities that are more and more offering advice and support for, for PCOS. I mentioned the international guideline. It is available online for, f- for free. You don't need to read the technical documents. It's about 300 pages. It's, <laughs> quite, it's quite long. But they, it, interestingly, and sort of um, a, a, a shout out for the researchers who produced the guideline. They did work collaboratively with lay patient representatives and they did produce sort of late-term um, um, summaries of the guideline and very simple infographs that if you just read them and take them to your GP and say, look, this is what the international guideline is saying. Mm-hmm. Can I please receive that? Can mm-hmm. I please tailor that to my specific con- condition? I think you will be at a very, very good start. And um, after that is just really trying to find a health professional that understands you. So mm-hmm. often I get, uh, I get questions, oh, my GP is refusing to do this to me or to do that to me. And I just say, look, I'm sorry, there's nothing you can do except changing your GP. Yeah. That, that's what it comes down to it. And there is a human element into it. 90% of GPs are extremely helpful and they want to help. There is a minority that would just not want to understand this condition. They might not be... They might not feel comfortable dealing mm-hmm. with it. Um, if you ask me something in pediatrics, I'd say I'm so uncomfortable to deal with it. So it, 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 there is a human element into it. So just you know, look, you be proactive and look for yeah. the healthcare professionals that will help you. And finally, join a support group. It's very important. And yesterday we did a webinar with a very TPCOS charity about support groups at the workplace and how can you tailor your workplaces to support you if you have PCOS. And so I think this idea is, is, is emerging and it doesn't need to be a face-to-face. It could be online mm-hmm. and, and it's just a, a peer of, of people who, you know, share your, your, your symptoms and share your condition and what you're going through that could really go a long way to help to support. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I think that's great advice and great practical advice. Um, Okay, so I normally end the episode with sort of what are your hopes for this field and, um, you know, what can you think of that might be better implemented in this kind of area. But I feel like we've already, I I have an idea, I think, Mm. of what, you know, especially based off of EV and the evidence synthesis of conditions like PCOS. But, I mean, if you were to say that there are things that you hope for going forwards, to summarize. Um, 
Yeah, so three things. Um, number one is better education for health professionals in general. And we are working on this and we're about to start an online uh, course specific mm -hmm. for, for health professionals in the community. It will be um, free to attend and it's in collaboration with the charity. So watch the space. Um, but this needs to have better adoption from, say, like the Royal Colleges and mm -hmm. other um, uh, sort of stakeholders like mm -hmm. policymakers. Number two is better data curation. So we are at the age, and maybe thanks to COVID, we've become so much better in capturing data, mm -hmm. large-scale data, sort of prospectively in healthcare system. But um, not many people are doing it in PCOS, so I'm hoping that we'll, we'll have better resources, infrastructure, and methodology to capture large-scale data and produce research at scale to inform clinical practice. And number three is have stronger collaboration with the patient representatives. And at EV, we're very mindful of that, and we try to have input from the patient directly into the research we do because at the end of the day, we are doing this research to help the patients, mm -hmm. to help them improve their life. It's not for, for, for me. And so it's important to have their input into it, and we're always striving for better sort of partnership with them. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, I hope for that as well. Um, but honestly, this has just been such a great and informative episode and honestly so grateful for having you here um, speaking with me about it today. Always a pleasure and thank you for organizing this and great, great effort to put into organizing this podcast. So really respectful. Thank you. Thanks.